Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look into the business of hockey. Is it destroying the game in some way, shape, or form in this country? With Neil Longley, the author of a new book called A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada. We dig into a 50-year-old mountaineering mystery, the deaths of two of a group of eight Americans attempting to summit the Western Hemisphere's highest peak in Argentina back in 1973. Was it accidental or not? And how the discovery of a camera belonging to one of the two climbers who died may shed new light on the mystery. And how a Canadian company helped develop the photos that that camera held for all those years. We head north, way north, to Canada's northernmost community, Greensfjord, to find out what it's like to live in complete darkness for 100 days and what the community does when the sun finally returns. We speak with the Toronto Star investigative reporter Sheila Wong, who went to the small Caribbean island of Dominica to look into the murders of a Canadian couple on November the 30th, including 3D animation pioneer and philanthropist Danielle Langlois and his longtime partner Dominic Marshall, and why their American neighbour is charged with their deaths. But first, aviation security expert and crash investigator John Cox joins me to talk about that horrific collision between a passenger jet and a Japanese Coast Guard Dash 8 that killed five people on the smaller plane in Tokyo on Tuesday. All 379 people on the Airbus escaped unharmed despite a fire that destroyed the plane. What went wrong? What went right? We find out. First up tonight, though, we'll head back to Japan because I've been watching a lot of those videos that have been emerging from that terrifying collision between the Airbus A350 and that Dash 8 on the runway at Haneda Airport in Tokyo yesterday. And uh, there's including video from inside the passenger plane. Now, more than 350 people managed to escape that uh, crash without any problem, even though that plane basically burnt up. Uh, it caught fire and burnt up. Five people, sadly, unfortunately, died on the smaller plane, which was a Japanese Coast Guard plane heading off uh, to do quake relief on the west coast of the country. We've been finding out some new details today about that collision. Here's the latest. ABC News has learned warning lights to tell pilots whether a runway is clear of another plane or not were not working at Tokyo Haneda Airport the night of the crash. A message to pilots alerted the system was down indefinitely. That will be part of the investigation. Air traffic control recordings indicate the Japan Airlines Airbus A350 was given clearance to land, but that a smaller Coast Guard plane had hit had inched out onto the runway. Alex Stone, ABC News. Again, all 379 people on board that Japanese Airlines flight survived. Uh, they dashed to emergency exits. exits uh, and a lot of this was down to not only the training of the flight attendants, which was, you know, the way they carried out the evacuation, apparently impeccable, but also passengers cooperating, leaving their hand luggage behind. Compliance with flight crew instructions, a big thing here. The simple act of leaving valuables behind apparently would have been a major factor in the speed of that evacuation, which saved lives. Here's more from reporter Lionel Moyes. Experts are praising the quick evacuation of the Japan Airlines plane with passengers following instructions, leaving their personal items behind. Planes are required to prove they can be evacuated within 90 seconds for emergencies like this, but that's not always the case. Back in 2016, the NTSB called the evacuation of an American Airlines flight at O'Hare Airport too close for comfort. After the engine caught fire, some passengers disregarded crew members' instructions taking their carry-on luggage with them, which could slow the evacuation. 
Now, one of the people we love to talk to about these things is aircraft uh, accident investigator John Cox. He's been on the show before. We thought this would be a great one to talk to him about again today. So he joins me now. John Cox is president and CEO of Safety Operating Systems, a veteran aviation safety expert and investigator, as I mentioned, and a former uh, airline pilot himself. John, thank you so much. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, Thanks for having me on. The images of this one, I mean, sometimes just the ability these days for so many images to be captured of something, but it, it, watching it, I mean, five people were killed, obviously, in the smaller plane in this one, so it is a tragedy, but the fact that no one was badly injured on that uh, Airbus was just remarkable, given the images that came out of it. Uh, they were. When you see the initial explosion, that's the Dash 8, the smaller airplane, basically disintegrating and the, with the loss of life, the tragic loss of life. And the jet fuel igniting, and then you see the Airbus slide down the uh, the runway. It says a number of things. It says one, the Airbus was very well designed. It was designed to get people out quickly. And even though only three of the eight exits were available, uh, they got everybody out. It says it was a well trained crew that did that. And it also says the passengers. When you look at the video from inside. They're listening to the flight attendants. They're not gathering their belongings like we've seen in some other evacuations. And all of that leads to a successful outcome. Yeah. I mean, the images that there are, there are in fact, images that I was talking about from inside the cabin when this was happening. And, and it was remarkable how unpanicked people seemed to be, even though it was obviously a very scary situation. Absolutely. When you saw the people, they turned to the, the flight attendants the trained professional flight attendants, for, okay, this has not gone well. And they also, you could feel the airplane hit, you know, collide with the smaller airplane. They knew something was wrong. The nose pitched over because the nose gear was knocked out from under it. So all of these things say, this is a pretty serious situation. I need to pay attention to what's going on because the flight attendants are who are going to be the people to get me out of this. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and too often, you know, I think people sort of, I, w- I was just on a plane not long ago coming back from somewhere. And you, you notice when, when flight attendants give the safety instructions, how many people just sort of tune out. Uh, right. and, it, and this is a reminder of just how vital the flight crew, the flight attendants are in these sorts of situations. Absolutely. They're highly trained both when they're initially hired, but also they have to demonstrate competency in opening these exits every year. The doors are better designed than they were in the 60s and 70s. They're wider for the bigger airplanes. You can get two people down the slide at the same time. When you look at an A350 with nearly 400 people on it and to get all of those people out quickly, good design, good training, good execution. Tell me a bit about the design, because that came up yesterday as well. The, 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 the composition of the plane itself seemed to be able to protect the passengers better than perhaps it would have in the past. One of the key things that we're going to be able to learn is airplanes that are not made out of an aluminum alloy, which they have historically been. This airplane is made out of composites and material, which is lighter and stronger than aluminum. But there was testing done in certification for how fire-resistant it was. But this is really the first time we've had a major accident where that hypothesis was tested. And it appears that it did pretty well. It provided protection to the passengers in the cabin long enough for them to get out. 
Yeah. I mean, in your case, you must have been thinking what it would be like for those pilots coming in, not only the pilots uh, of, the, of the Airbus, but also the pilots of the Dash 8 as well in that situation, right? Just an absolutely the, the most horrific situation at a, at a very busy airport. Right. Extremely busy airport. One of the, the busiest in Asia. The, as far as the Dash 8 crew, they never knew what hit them. Mm. Uh, it was just all of a sudden their world just exploded. For the crew in the Airbus, I think there was this impact with a, what was that? I think so. Now the question is just maintaining control. Uh, the nose gear is knocked out. You're, you're facing the runway. You're pitched down. It's dark. There, you know, there are sparks everywhere. Now it's, okay, we've got to get this thing stopped and get everybody out of it. I think that's the, the mindset with the pilots. They'll know more. The captain did survive out of the, the Dash 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand that preliminary interviews have been held with him and also with the crew of the Airbus. But there are some similarities to a February 1991 accident in Los Angeles where a 737 struck a uh, metro liner on the north complex at LAX. So lessons learned, uh, I think, are there any similarities between the two? How did the two airplanes respond? And that may be one of the the questions uh, about how well the composite airplane did with the Airbus about protecting people. Right. If I remember correctly, the LAX one uh, was far more catastrophic in terms of loss of life, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's true. There were, I think, 10 people in the Metroliner, and I think we lost either 23 or 28 uh, in the Boeing. I worked that accident, uh, Mm -hmm. and so I I spent a long time with it. It was was a very difficult place to work. Yeah. Uh, Given that, when you look at what happened uh, at Haneda, what what are we trying to mean? I gather that both pilots, I mean, the captain of the the Dash 8 and obviously the crew of the the Boeing, of the Airbus survived. Um, What else would you be looking for here in terms of trying to figure out exactly what could have gone wrong here? There's a lot of complexity in here. The clearance that the both airplanes were given, were they, were they properly phrased? Were they properly timed? Were all of the safety devices, stop bars and, and runway lights, were those all available to both crews? What could the JAL crew see of the Dash 8 uh, as they approach the runway? So th- there's a lot of questions like that. As the fire spread, how did people react to it? One of which was the flight attendants knew or determined not to open some of the exits because of the fire. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Good training, good execution. So that does that need to be reinforced in training to say, okay, in a catastrophic event, before you open that door, make sure that you're not opening it up into a fire. So uh, I think that you're going to see probably 18 months before we get a final report, just so the investigators can thoroughly go through all the events that led up to this tragedy. John Cox is with us this half hour, president and CEO of Safety Operating Systems, a veteran aviation safety expert and investigator, a former airline pilot himself. We're seeing, I gather, fewer incursions such as this one. I, I gather this de Havilland was, it's a Coast Guard plane. It was leaving to go help with the quake relief. Of course, there's been a major earthquake in, in Japan on New Year's Day. Could that have added to the confusion perhaps on the, on, in, in and around Haneda because you had this emergency, these emergency flights leaving at the same time as you had regular traffic coming in and out? Um, we operate with the military all the time. Right. Uh, it's very common for civilian and, 
and military airplanes to share airspace. The question of priorities and sequencing, that's handled by air traffic control. So there's, it's pretty much a standard flow. It's just where the military airplane would fit in that, that flow. So I'm not sure that the fact that there was a priority flight that the Coast Guard was trying to accomplish um, is going to be a significant factor, but they'll certainly look at it. And they'll talk to the air traffic controller saying, did you do anything unusual because you were trying to get the Dash 8 out in an earlier sequence? And that may be why they were so far down the runway at an intersection. That runway is quite long, and the de Havilland does not need that much runway. So this may have been a way for them to get the priority of getting that de Havilland out and on its way up to the victims of the earthquake. Yeah, it's interesting because just the day before this happened, I'd seen a statistic uh, because 2023 had come to an end and yet another year in America, and I'll knock on wood for this because I'm not superstitious, but it feels like the right time to do it. Yet another year in America without a major airline incident or disaster, at least. This 2023 was a much better year even than that. We flew 35 million flights in 2023 without a single accident or fatality in a commercial jet. There were two accidents. Uh, They were both turboprops. They each uh, had fatalities, unfortunately, but they were kind of rare events themselves. And so if you look at for the number of fatalities overall, 2023 was the safest in aviation history. 2017, it had fewer fatalities, but more accidents. It depends on what metrics you want to use to measure safety. But 2023 was a remarkably safe year. It's, it's, and looking back at all your work over the many years, it must be in some sense as gratifying that a lot of what, a lot of the work that you did in the past has helped informed and helped make it safer now, that, that a lot of lessons have been learned when it comes to flying properly or making sure that safety is first. It, I've been in aviation safety for well over 35 years, and the, it's real rewarding to watch the improvements and how this, the aviation has evolved over the years. But it's standing on the shoulders of a lot of people, a lot of safety professionals, as well as a lot of professionals flying the airplanes, the dispatchers, the maintainers of the airplane, even the management teams, uh, all of these, um, and the flight attendants, all of these professionals work together to create an industry that is remarkably safe. Is, I mean, we've been reading about sort of, you know, trouble with strained, strained um, staffing at air traffic control and so on. I mean, we're feeling the impacts, the after effects of the pandemic and so on. Is there things that need to be done to make sure that this record continues? Do you think, are you confident with what you're seeing in 2023 that this will continue on into 24 and 25 and so on? I would say that particularly with the air traffic control staffing, if we don't do something with that and improve it and focus on it, that we will see an erosion in the safety net. That comes back to politically funding the training for air traffic controllers and to make sure that their rigorous high standards are continued and met. That's one that concerns me a lot because it's a political solution for funding. That's something beyond those of us in aviation safety's control. I think we're building better airplanes. I think we're training as well or better than we ever have, both for pilots, dispatchers, maintainers, and uh, uh, flight attendants. So I think the pieces are all there for continued improvement in aviation safety. It's just a matter now of executing it. 
Yeah. And one of the things to go back to Japan and what happened yesterday, one of the things that struck me, too, is just what a role passengers have to play. And sometimes they forget this, but what a role passengers have to play in their own safety in incidents like the one we saw at Haneda yesterday. Absolutely. The passengers, when you get on the airplane, you need to determine where the nearest exit is. You need to listen to the safety briefing and make sure you understand um, how the doors operate and what's expected of you. If you have to get out of the airplane, leave your belongings on board. Uh, and then finally, the last thing is, if you're in your seat, keep your seatbelt at least loosely fastened so that you, if, there, if there's turbulence, you're not a victim of it. Uh, I do that myself all the time, unless for some reason I'm up walking and I'm out of my seat, seatbelt is loosely fastened. John, as always, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Ben. Good to see you. Happy New Year. We clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Oh. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park. You may not know the name Danielle Langlois, but trust me, if you watched a blockbuster, any blockbuster in the 90s, you've seen his work. Um, Jurassic Park was just one of the many movies that relied on the ingenuity of his 3D animation. Uh, other films included The Matrix, uh, Men in Black, Death Becomes Her, the list goes Titanic, the list goes on and on and on and on. The Quebec-born new media entrepreneur sold his company called Soft Image to Microsoft for some $200 million back in 1994. But he continued to break new ground in the Canadian film industry, including opening a cinema complex in Montreal called Eccentris, promoting the work of experimental filmmakers and starting philanthropic work through the foundation that still carries his name. But in 1997, he and his longtime partner, Dominique Marchand, set their sights on a new venture in a new country. They moved to the small Caribbean island of Dominica, where they began work on what would become the Coulibri Ridge, a 285-acre, 14-suite eco-resort, which opened just last year, actually, or in 2022, rather, after years of development. But his quarter century on the island, the couple's quarter century on the island, would end in tragedy and in crime. It would culminate in a shocking crime, really, that claimed the lives of both the 66-year-old Langlois and his longtime a partner, the 58-year-old Marchand. On December 1st, the, first, the bodies of the two, the couple, were found in a burnt-out SUV, their burnt-out SUV. That was found on December the 1st. Um, it turns out the murders had happened the day before. Investigators soon determined that the couple had been shot and killed before their vehicle was moved and set alight. And police there quickly took three people into custody, including the couple's longtime neighbors on the island, an American cocoa plantation owner and businessman named Jonathan Lehrer. Here is uh, Dominica police announcing the arrests back in early December. At the conclusion of the investigations, two individuals were charged for the murder. Investigations are still ongoing as we speak. The other man arrested and charged is another American. Lehrer's wife, Victoria, was also taken into custody but later released. Now, the investigation continues, as was mentioned, and police are saying very little about the case. Uh, but the focus has been on this long-running dispute between Longlois and his neighbor over access to a public road that ran through Lehrer's property. The murders have had a huge impact on the island of 72,000, where the Canadian couple were respected for their generosity and kindness. Um, Longlois was given a meritorious service 
Service Award for his contributions to Dominica's sustainable development during a ceremony back in November. And here at home, where Longwa is credited, credited with not just pioneering 3D animation in this country and in Hollywood and beyond, but it also created thousands of jobs in Montreal while transforming that city's film industry. Well, Toronto Star investigative reporter Sheila Wong uh, has been looking into this story. She even traveled to Dominica last month to get a better sense of the crime, the investigation, and the impact that it's had on the island the couple called home for a quarter century. And she joins me now. Uh, Sheila, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me here. This is a really curious story because I think I grew up in Montreal. So Daniel Langlois was a very well-known name, specifically in the 90s after he became so popular and his work was seen in so many big blockbuster movies that he opened Eccentris and, uh, on St. Lawrence. And it was just a, he was just a big, a big name in town. So, but I hadn't heard what, about what had happened to him since. I hadn't, in fact, seen his name until this all happened. Uh, how did they come to be in, in Dominica and what were they doing there? Daniel and his partner, Dominique Marjan, they actually moved to uh, Dominica in 1997. That's after I think he made his fortune with this uh, selling his company, Southern Image. Mm -hmm. And I think they both went to the island because they fell in love with the waters. They love diving and they love the nature. And gradually, they also started having this big vision, which is trying to build a uh, um, sustainable project on the island. So I think that's what they des- why they decided to stay on the island. And they have stayed there ever since. Right. I mean, and they were they were much loved, too. I gather that uh, over the I mean, they've been there for, for more than 20 years now. Yeah. And this resort just opened relatively recently, although they had planned it for years. But they were involved in the Humane Society, or at least she was. And they helped the island after uh, a hurricane not that long ago. So they were much loved. They, 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 they spent their money in a way that was very endearing to the community. That's correct. So they built their um, sustainable eco resort which is called Calibra Ridge um like slowly and um gradually I don't think they're they were ever in a hurry to open it. I think it's more like a passion project. They just want to uh do this. And in 2022 they finally opened officially opened this resort to the public. But even before that, they have invited a lot of locals to uh really visit this resort because the resort was was pretty much completed for quite a while. But uh Daniel as what the local told me that he was very uh, into the detail. So he was perfecting the detail, making sure it's ready to open. So he did that and eventually opened that. And at the same time, they were quite, the couple were quite busy on the island. They both have their individual charities that are carrying on. So Daniel has this uh, resilient Dominica project, which mm-hmm. is a um, charity that was kind of uh, started for the purpose of helping uh, rebuild Dominica after Hurricane Maria in 2017. That was mm-hmm. a very devastating catastrophe on the island and a lot of buildings were destroyed. So he helped rebuild a lot of uh, infrastructures, including local schools and uh, like the jetties on the on the coast as well. And his partner, Dominique Marchand, she had founded this organization called Human Society mm-hmm. of uh, Dominica. This is um, more like a volunteer rescue animal organization. They helped other families treat the, the, the animals because they have a lot of pets on the island, but not everybody has the means to take care of them. For example, the vet bills, how to get them neutered and fixed. So she helped them with that as well. Um, she also helped with um, the education in school, like trying to teach the students like, how to take care of the animals, how to coexist with all the animals on the island. Right. Uh, tell me a bit about what happened then 
on December the 1st, because here is this couple, wealthy, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. well-respected, well-loved. And on December the 1st, I, I gather around 7 p.m., a call comes into the police. Yeah, so on December the 1st, three resort employees found a burnt-out SUV on the back road. And they called the police right away, and the police came to, to investigate, and they found two burnt-out bodies inside SUV. And they were both burned beyond recognition, but the police were able to uh, identify them through the vehicle identification number. They realized this vehicle belonged to them, and that's how they um, identified a couple were the victims. And on that very same day, they arrested the suspects on a neighboring property. So at the time when they found the vehicle, the police also figure out there are two crime scenes, actually. The first crime scene was on the public road where they found, you know, the, the spent bully casings on mm-hmm. the road. And the second crime scene was where the uh, resort employees actually found the burnt out SUV. Uh, they, when they found the SUV, the SUV was burn, burnt out, but there are like bully holes on the, on the car. So they realized there was shooting happened. So what happened is that the couple were driving on their way back on the public road where they were apparently ambushed by gunshots and they were killed there. And somebody drove their car, they drove their SUV from the public road to a back road and pushed it further off the road and they set it on fire and they left it. That's right. November 30th. And uh, the next morning, and somebody uh, found the burnt out SUV and called the police. All right. This happened on November 30th, and then on, it was found on December the 1st. Police yeah. then arrest Langlois and Marchand's neighbor. Um, yeah. And now, what do we know about Jonathan Lehrer? I know he's an American. He's also yeah. wealthy. And he yeah. was he had been living on the island for quite some time himself and with his wife and his kids. Yes. So Jonathan Lehrer, um, he's American from New Jersey. And uh, he's married to Victoria Lara. So they both live on a property next to Daniel's property. But the two properties were connected by a public road. And Jonathan is known as a chocolate maker, chocolatier, if you will. Um, He's been there, I think, more than a decade. He is in a similar business, I want to say, like a business industry as well, because he was operating on this uh, historic property, uh, which is essentially a cocoa plantation. He makes chocolate and he hosts tours from the cruise ships. That's his business model. He put together his project, uh, his products and then having people visit his property. And then he really builds a, a thriving business by, uh, by himself as well. Right. So these are two sort of people from away, both with money, both with ambition, both with things they've built. But there's a dispute, right? There's a dispute over, and you mentioned the public road already, but there's a public road that runs through Mr. Lehrer's property that accesses the Langlois Eco Resort. And this has become a bone of contention between the two men. Yes. So this road is called Morn Rouge Public Road. If you want to go to the Daniels Eco Resort, you have to go past or go through Jonathan's property. So this road basically cuts through his property and leads to Daniel's Eco Resort. And for many years, uh, what I've heard from locals and by reading the local court documents is that Jonathan has been interfering with the use of the public road. And essentially, they're preventing Daniel and his resort employees from using the road to get to the resort. The highest point of that dispute was in October 2018, when Jonathan and his employees actually dug a trench on the road and put boulders and some metal pipes in the middle of the road 
to prevent Daniel and his his resort employees from using the road at all. So what happened is that uh, Daniel took Jonathan to court, to a Dominican court, saying that um, I want to be able to use this public road. And he actually got an injunction from court saying that uh, Jonathan can no longer obstruct or use the public road. So Daniel can can use the road. And um, that was that. But, uh, you know, it's an injunction. So the final ruling has not come out yet. So it's kind of long dragged court case. But the tension between these two have been just kind of going on for a while. This tension is also not just toward Daniel or his resort employee. I've heard people um, talking about their own experiences or their own encounters with uh, Jonathan and his employees when they're passing through on the same road. For example, this one local businessman who prefer not to be named because mm-hmm. he's just you know worried about retribution he said he used to um he's a local businessman so he used to have to drive on the, the public road to get to the resort to have meetings with daniel but he has personally encountered many times the loose dogs on the public road so when when he's driving on the road the dogs will be kind of jumping up and down scratching his cars and he had to roll up the windows um that happened many times and the loose dogs were kept by jonathan and his wife I was there on December 9th. I was um, in the car um, on my way to the Eco Resort. I actually saw the dogs. I saw three dogs were chained to a gazebo-like structure in the courtyard of the Cocoa Plantation. And on that day, it was also uh, when the Dominica uh, police force was on site searching the property. I think that's probably why the dogs were chained or I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I did see the dogs. It was also coincidental that on the same day, Jonathan was also on the property. He was taken by the police to execute a search warrant. Oh, on his own property, because he had been arrested at this point, right? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. he was arrested and charged and remanded to a state jail a few days earlier. But then he needed to be taken out of jail to execute a search warrant on his property. So he was there, but I didn't personally see him. I later learned he was also there in police custody. Right. And then he I'm, was returned to the jail later. Toronto Star investigative reporter Sheila Wong is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, her recent trip to Dominica to look into the details surrounding the murders of a prominent Canadian in the film industry named Daniel Langlois. His 3D animation software was responsible for some of the biggest blockbusters of the 90s. He sold his company to Microsoft for a couple hundred million dollars back in the 90s. And he, for about 25 years, had been living on the Caribbean island of Dominica alongside his partner, Dominic Marchand. They were murdered on November the 30th. Their bodies found on December the 1st. A neighbor, an American neighbor who owned a chocolate plantation, a cocoa plantation, has been arrested, as has another American. What are police saying about about the circumstances, as far as they know, around what happened and why, if anything? So the police have been very tight-lipped about every detail. Uh, around this uh, investigation. I had opportunity to sit down with their lead investigator in this case. And the, the interview went was mostly like, I asked questions, he just nodded along when I got the information right, or he just denied it. Mm-hmm. Because I collect information on my own and I had to ask questions. He's not volunteering anything, essentially. So there are some interesting details I collected from the public and I asked them about, and they eventually eventually able to confirm is that there was a bunker uh, structure that they found on the property. On the so Lair property, right? On the, yeah, on the neighbor's yeah, property. On, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the Lair's property. And then the police said they found large quantity of food and water inside the bunker. Yeah. And then, but it, they wouldn't say anything more than that. So I have right. no idea what was that, you know, there's any uh, relationship to that murder or not. Um, but a few days later, 
a video showing an underground bunker was released to the local social media accounts that was shared with me. And in the bunker video, you can see it was massive. It's almost like an underground palace. And you can walk through it. You can see a lot of pipes and then ship, shipping containers. It's very dark. Right. Yeah. But so it was almost like a survivalist thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It and, looks well, very weird. Tell me a bit about about Robert Snyder of Florida, because he's the other person who's been arrested here. Uh, Victoria Lehrer, Jonathan Lehrer's wife, was also originally uh, taken into custody, but she's been released. Uh, yep. Tell me a bit about Robert Snyder. Do we know anything about this other person who's been charged in this case at this point? At this point, not a lot, but we yeah. know that um, he's more like a self-proclaimed uh, mechanic. And he was invited by Jonathan Lehrer to the island about two weeks before the murder happened. And he was set to leave the um the islands probably a few days later yeah the impact on the island though i mean again this is not a big place about seventy two thousand people you've been there mm. uh the impact i mean people this is much talked about right and and mm. the impact of the loss of langlois and marchand on the island is being deeply felt i understand as well yes so i think my first impression when i start talking to people about this death and people just are in this huge disbelief um, I didn't expect how um, close the or a relationship that, um, that both the couple have built with the local people, especially in the southern village called Soufrié, Soufrié in the south of Dominica, where the eco resort is located at. Everybody was pretty much in shock and then just kind of overwhelmed with sadness. There's nobody who is whose life is not touched by them because they're just so deeply involved in the community from like the big things we talk about, like rebuilding uh, the island after the uh, the hurricane, but also like little things they wherever people needed help, they will just let their hand. So I think I remember talking to one of the local kayak shop owners and he was just basically sitting there and talking about them and start crying. Wow. That, that's, that just shows you how much of impact that they have made on people. The little things I can give you some examples, they were just the villagers having trouble um, paying their medical bills. They would just help you. And they also, um, in their resort, they hired a lot of local um, uh, villagers, so gave them jobs. And they also, when they're rebuilding, helping rebuild uh, Dominica, they also source exclu- exclusively locally. There's any way they can, they're helping locals and they're also make themselves part of the community. So everybody knows them. Right. And I gather the resort is still open, right? I mean, they're trying to make this work without them. Yes, that's correct. The resort's still open. Right. And just, I mean, your experiences there, I don't think many people have been to Dominica. It's quite far, right? And it's mm-hmm. uh, just your impressions of being there and all this. I mean, this has been uh, this has been talked about a lot here, obviously, because of who was involved. But uh, this mm-hmm. has obviously had a huge impact there. It is um, such a peaceful nation. Um, it's very small, well, especially when you compare with um, Canada. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're such a large country, mm-hmm. but um, that's a very tiny island. And so that also ex- explains why uh, the community is so close-knit. Everybody knows everybody. When somebody is so deeply involved in community and something like this bad happened to them, everybody was personally shocked and impacted. The, I believe the crimes rates are pretty uh, relatively low and people mm-hmm. in general feel really safe. So it, with, with this type of crime that happened to the to the nation, everybody was just just cannot believe. I think a lot of people are still in denial that this actually happened right. um, because it's just too shocking to them. And, and I guess the next step now is this continued um, investigative and court process, which which I mean, the investigation goes on. And mm-hmm. uh, what happens to, and the court case continues in March, right? So a while yet. 
it's, it's gonna be for a while, but the police are continuing investigation. Well, then again, they are keeping every detail to themselves. So um, it's gonna be kind of difficult for us to get uh, information um, from the authorities. Um, but people are definitely talking about it. It's on everybody's mind. Right. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for sharing the story with us and and your journey to Dominica to find out more about this case. Thank you so much for having me. I've been noticing, you know, we, we get up, what, around 7, 7, 7.30 in the morning. I work quite late. It's still dark. It's so dark in the morning here still. But because it's past the 21st, every day gets just a little bit longer, just a little bit, an extra minute a day so far. I was looking at the uh, at the stats and we're getting about an extra minute of sunlight each and every day now. Um, maybe it's the same for you. I'm wondering, do you, have you noticed it starting to get a little lighter? I know it's tough at this time of year, you know, sort of post-Christmas, everyone's kind of, this kind of the tough part of the dark part of winter, right? Uh, but in some parts of this country, we are still weeks away from the first sunrise of 2024. If you look at the sunlight forecast for Grise uh, Fjord or Aswitok, North America's northernmost community, uh, 1,160 kilometers uh, north of the Arctic Circle, it says, or from the Arctic Circle rather, it says not for this day. I'd never seen that scheduled. When you look at how much sunlight you're going to have on a single day, it says not for this day. No sunlight at all. Uh, the far north, of course, is in the midst of, or at least that community, the furthest North is uh, in the midst of a hundred days of darkness. Uh, the people who live in Grease Fjord won't see sunlight again until I think sometime in February, February tenth. It was a few years ago. Uh, the last sunset was sort of around the end of October. So it is a long stretch uh, without sunshine, uh, without daylight there. Uh, so let's head thirty five hundred kilometers north by northeast from where I am here in Victoria all the way up to uh, that area of Griesfjord, Nunavut, again, the northernmost community in North America. And uh, we have joining us there now from the community to talk a bit about all of this um, is a photographer, someone who's taken some great pictures you can find online. Uh, Lisa uh, Audeluk Watsko joins me now from, uh, from there. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Lisa. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, this is, I'm sure you've been asked, I know you've been, you've already talked about this in the past few weeks. Uh, I'm sure you get asked about this quite a bit, but what's it like? I mean, we're now sort of past the holidays. So down here in the South, it tends to be a little more difficult with the low, with the dark days. But uh, when was the last time the sun, you had daylight up there? Daylight, uh, it was around mid-November. The sunset went down on November one. Um, it's been cracked on like ever since uh, daybright, daybright, and then dim right down to like the smallest cracked on like in November, uh, December. And there's no day brightness anywhere. Uh, it's just um, it's it's a horizon. It's like a cracked on all day until it starts um, the next day again. And it's 15 to 20 minutes cracked on, getting a little bit bigger. Right. So you do get a tiny, tiny sliver of, of, of an indication of what what's down the road a little bit, just a little bit at this point. Yeah. So looking down to the east, uh, east coast, uh, because we're in the ocean and um, we can see like the horizon come across on uh, the ocean. But um, yeah, so it's the it's not even daybright yet. It's just um, crack of dawn, like. But it's uh, it gets bigger and bigger every day until 
you can see the reflection of the the light of the ombre colors uh, from the ice, from the ice and the ocean. Right. Right. Now, I know, I understand. I mean, you, you, you grew up there, right? So this is something that you that you get used to. But but how do you, how does, how do you cope? And what's it like for those who didn't grow up there when they come to see them? Because I gather it's both um, a bit discombobulating, but also quite spectacular, right? I mean, the colors and the sky, I've been looking at your photographs. It's pretty remarkable. I, I guess you you get used to it um, in a way. Uh, now that Christmas is over and the holidays, uh, it's starting to jig because they're waiting back to go work next week, and the days are dragging a little bit because school is not back. So you're staying up. Uh, oh yeah, it's already two a.m. and we're like we're just finishing our snack, or we have we have come along with the hours because you can't tell if it's like it's. Normally, you go like to bed with kids nine, ten. You're already down by you know that early. But during winter and the holiday break, it can you can drag it up to three to four hours extra because um, you're on your own time and you know you're catching up at home. And next thing you know, it's past the holidays and you're trying to drag yourself back up. Um, okay, how am I going to do this? You sacrifice five hours of sleep, four hours of sleep to get back into routine, but you have to push it like extra two, three days to get back to routine because your body's uh, so tired and you don't have enough vitamins and daybright to uh, boost your energy. It can be a little bit challenging, especially for elders and um, non-working group. Um, You have to keep busy. You have to keep busy, and yeah. there's hunting life people who are in and out of the community, and uh, they stay active because it's traditional for us to catch our staple foods like seal meat and other uh, marine mammals. So people stay busy, but for the people during winter, it can be a little bit challenging right about now because um, some people might have lost their family members or they had a tough, or if they had any illness, then uh, having that energy or a ray of light, uh, something to look forward to kind of changes. And it, it can be a little bit dragging sometimes and a challenge. Yeah, I, I guess if, if you are if you find yourself a bit down, uh, you don't have anything. I mean, it's tough, right? It's tough. I, I never thought that it would be hard to, I mean, I gathered it would be hard to keep track of time, but I, would ne- I never thought it would be difficult to sort of sleep properly given how dark it is. But I can see how your body clock's kind of thrown out too, right? So uh, you struggle with that. What, did, what do you do as a community to try to boost each other's spirits? Because I would imagine that a lot of this is about coming together and sort of propping each other up through these dark months. Yeah, uh, so the beauty of the small communities, um, the the community was established after the Cold War in the 1950s, bringing families here. So we're learning as we go. If you think about it, only a couple of generations, about 70 years, 70 odd years here and we're, we're still learning the land. We're still learning each other's traditions. And uh, for a, a small place, the beauty of it uh, being small is that everyone's helping one another. So if anyone catches like a caribou or two, they'll, they'll open their door and say, uh, come pick up some meat. Or on Saturdays, uh, there's programs that the community or the municipality holds um, 
come Saturday is board game night and they do it for like three months uh, for the winter. So kids are the elders and the adults stay active and the kids have evening at the the community centers. So three, four, four days a week. It's just uh, trying to keep busy and keeping keeping programs open for people to stay busy and um for the ones like we've had a couple of losses this winter and it's kind of heavy for mm-hmm. some elders. So we, we offer them, do you want us to take you to the store? Do you want to uh, get us to get you anything? That's the thing about being small, like everyone's related one way or another. So we know that, okay, they need a ride to the health center or to the store. That's what we're still able to do here. And, that's, I don't know, um, maybe it's a coping mechanism, not so much, but it's just uh, looking out for each other. And um, when one knows that they need help, they'll reach out. And uh, it's not so hard to uh, to help each other in, in a place like this. Right. I, I mean, again, I, I've never been, I've been north, but I've never been that far north. Uh, you're closer to Greenland than you are to, to most of us, right? That's the, that's part of it. I, I understand you, you, you were talking a bit about just uh, about uh, your husband hunting and so on, and just how dark it can be. Um, just how dark it get darker than dark, I think was the term you used. Yeah, so um, during Christmas, your own time, you're out hunting more. And uh, moon is our source of light because moon is the brightest. So when you're on the ice uh, looking up towards the north, um, it can be a different, it's a reverse uh, lighting. Like you can see, oh, it's it's brighter out here than we think, than we see from the community. Uh, You have to, you have to imagine it kind of, it's kind of tough, but when the moon is, when the moon is shining, they'll go out, they'll take that advantage. And then, um, but they'll go and they'll go every chance or every weekend. The, the, the hunter's able to go and uh, they know that, oh, there's fresh uh, seal holes over nearby. So they, they keep going until they catch enough uh, because it's our staple food. But on the days where um, there's not enough moonlight or it's, a, it's clouded, they're hunting together and they usually hunt as a group two or more and um, they'll be... I've gone, my husband has t- taken me out on the ice and mm-hmm. I I could watch, I could wait in the seal hole for no more than probably 15 minutes because I'm too scared of the noise, like the the sound of the right. ice cracking over there or the wind because it's so dark. You can see the shape of the ice that you were standing there by and it's like shaped darker than uh, what you're right in front of because that's... Uh, you got to be quiet, but you still see shapes, and it's a little bit darker than dark. I don't know if it makes sense how the gray yeah, or the it, black, it sounds but spooky. it's all shapes. <laughs> it sounds spooky, like Yeah, honestly. and you're, wait, sounds... you're wondering if, the, if, that's a, if that's a seal you're hearing breathing or the, the, the tracks of the polar bear nearby, or it, it, it can be creepy, eerie. Sometimes it's mind-boggling how big this country is. Uh, Lysa Outlook Watsko is about 3,500 kilometers away from away from where I'm sitting tonight in Canada's northernmost community of uh, Ausiatuk uh, Griesfjord, uh, you may know it as, in Nunavut, and we're talking about uh, life in darkness or life without life without daylight. Uh, they're in the midst of about 100 days. It's drawing near 
an end, or it will be at least in February, but there's still some time to go. Um, Lisa, what's it like when the sun comes back? I gather that it's quite the celebration when, in fact, the sun reappears. So if you ever imagined or look up uh, the ends of the earth, I think this location really defines the ends of the earth because um, it's like one extreme to the next uh, where we are located in terms of brightness. So right now we're in, we're out of, uh, we're, uh, we already reached the peak of the dark season, uh, which was December 21. We're going brighter and brighter now and then Soon it'll be uh, day bright, but in June it'll be reciprocal to this darkness. It'll be right. Sunday sunlight all day. It'll be sun brightness all day, 24 hours sun, and we're hovered around mountains, and uh, the sun will be just kind of disappearing just for a couple of hours behind our mountain. But people will be going out hunting one in the morning because the sun is bright. And for those hunting hunters, um, they they can go out any time of the day, any time of the night. Uh, during day right. in June, it'll be twenty four hours sun bright. It's it's hard to imagine, I think, for people who've never seen it, to live in complete darkness for several months and then to leave, live in complete brightness uh, for several months, just trying to figure out how to sleep. And I've, I've been getting texts from from listeners, Lisa, just wondering about sort of vitamins and staying healthy when it's so dark. Yeah, so um, we, we still do our traditional hunting. I mentioned the seal is our staple food, and the seal itself mm. uh, consists of many different vitamins, and it's rich in iron. And mm. um, we don't, uh, some, some many don't think about it uh, medically or uh, naturally sometimes. They know that when their energy is down, they say, oh, I need seal meat or I need country food. Uh, we call it country food because we, we get our game. So it kind of, it kind of balances uh, their energy levels, um, even though there's no brightness. It's all vitamins that we take and intake, and naturally we always uh, long for our natural foods uh, when we're low in energy. Uh, that's how I learned, learned it too growing up. I wanted country food because I needed energy, and that's how they, they, we still uh, group it. Like, we need energy, so we go out and catch our country food. And right. that's vitamins. And it's not just seal meat. It's like whale meat or polar bear and caribou and fish. And they all have all sorts of different vitamins. When, when you come Natural south, vitamins. do you... Right. When you, when you travel south, do you find it strange with the, with the way the days work, with the way sunlight works? Yeah, having to get used to it, I guess. Yeah, having to get used to it. Yeah, we kind of enjoy it because um, you like for winter. If I went out in December, and um, if it's for work or leisure, and I'm like it's closest Ottawa, it's like wow, it's really bright for um, like seven, eight in the morning. It's like we missed it, and then we'll go out for a walk or. We'll just enjoy the daybreak, and we we don't realize how much we miss it until we go out and see or open the curtain, and it's bright. It's like wow! Like, and then when it's when it's time to go home, it's you go right back to darkness until if you if if you went home before February, it's like 
okay, where's the sun already? And where's the brightness that we just left? Like, when does it come? And you start counting days. It can be a little yeah. bit dragging. Are you still taking your, I mean, I've seen your photographs. A lot of them, it seems that you take a lot of them sort of at in, in brightness, right? Do you do you still take pictures during this dark period of the year too? Yeah, I didn't go out as much in December. Um, I, I do take the dark season pictures and I have a few. Um, some are natural, some are highlighted. But um, for this, seven years that we've been here, it seems like, uh, even according to my late aunt who passed over a year ago, she said the 70 years or 60 years she's been here, she said it was way brighter than she first ever came. So they were, they were, they would joke that the, the earth has tilted a little bit that we have cracked on in December now. And she said, we're not used to that. We can see the eyes and wow. people are going to take that advantage of that cracked on. That's funny. Even everywhere, people from older generations will always say it was colder and darker before during the winter than it is now. It's sort of it's it's nice to hear that it's the same there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not even that cold. Like uh, it's been exaggerated over line or like on different stories and shows or on YouTube. But it's not the coldest place. It's just a dry, dry, cold place. I don't think right. we reach ever more than uh, minus 40. Uh, we're always uh, 30 or <laughs> below. That's cold. Yeah, wasn't it minus 25 today? Yeah, I think I, I looked that up. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I, uh, I guess, you know, I think people, it must be an incredible experience to, to be able to talk about it and just to be able to, to share that. I mean, because I think a lot of us forget we're all in this, this massive country together. And it's amazing to think that there is communities that, uh, that, that live through winters with no sun and summers with no dark. Yeah, it is. Uh, it does really describe the ends of the earth. We are far. Uh, we can say we're isolated, but we have technology here too now. And um, back then when my when the families came here, they, they said they were extra isolated because they weren't used to the dark season coming from uh, northern mm. Quebec. So it, it, right. it has been a learning experience uh, for the families here because really when you think about it it's only a couple of generations so we learn so when 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 it's brighter and further and we learned that oh there's this game up there that way and next year the one day learn that trail right. they'll go a little bit further to see oh there's fishes over there too so we're still exploring as we go but there's different tribes and archaeological sense that different um, groups have Inuit have been here, uh, according to the archaeological sites that we have seen and learned. So it, it has been really, uh, yeah, learning about the ends of the earth here um, ourselves. Uh, we live it. We right. we're used to it. I I I don't know if it's safe to say we're used to it, but it can be tough for some some people or working class that are not used to it and they'll try to live here for a couple of years, sometimes teaching or policing, but uh, they can't get, some of the handful of ones can't get used to it. So they have left. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing, um, for sharing, sharing, it does for sure, sharing what it's like to be where you are. And uh, we'll be thinking of you in February. I'll be looking to see when that, 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 
thing not today changes on the on the weather outlook for where you are and it finally says the sun's gonna gonna rise we'll be thinking of you back then thank you so much uh for sharing your story with me tonight i appreciate it thank you for having me you know sometimes you you miss the hard copy of a newspaper and then sometimes you see something and you think and it couldn't be done in a hard copy and you're just blown away by it and this is what happened when i read this article that we're about to talk about. Um, it involves the Western Hemisphere's highest mountain, not one you attempt to conquer without thorough planning and preparation. Uh, through 2022, according to the report, there were about 153 known deaths on the mountain. And yet 50 years ago, a group of eight Americans headed to Argentina's Aconcagua to do just that, to climb it. Their 1973 expedition would end in tragedy and become one of the mountain's um, 22,838 feet mind you. One of its most enduring tales, mysteries even, if a cautionary one. Um, the octet um, from the Mazamas Climbing Club, founded in Oregon back in 1894, included high school teacher Janet Johnson, uh, NASA engineer John Cooper. There was a lawyer, a psychiatrist, a physician, a dairy farmer, a policeman, a college student who was there as a translator, as well as a guide and a base camp manager who were both locals. I mentioned the names of Johnson and Cooper specifically because they are the ones who would not survive. They would become deaths number 26 and 27 on that mountain. Johnson, by the way, uh, was the most experienced climber in the group. Um, the only woman, but also the most experienced climber. She also brought a camera. And that camera, for nearly 50 years, couldn't wasn't found until it was. Um, it had been in a glacier, it appeared. Uh, and the photos that were on it were actually brought to a Canadian company to be developed. And they tell more of the story. They don't actually solve the mystery. Uh, they add to it in many ways, at least according to the article. Um, and the, the way they died, how they died, was it accidental or not, that remains a bone of contention 50 years later. Uh, the article was written by New York Times reporter John Branch. He had lots of help on it. It's a beautiful piece. I highly recommend you go read it and watch it. Um, and it's called Ghosts in the Glacier, on the glacier, rather. And he joins me now. John, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hello, Ben. Nice to be here. Thank you. It is an incredible story, and I was curious to know how you how you came across it. Yeah, well, there was a, a climber and photographer down in Argentina who works on Aconcagua during the climbing season, and it's not a, not somebody I know, but he knew of my work, I guess, somehow. And um, when this camera was found on the glacier, um, he recognized, one, that there was film inside, and two, that there might be a story behind it because he knew the name on the camera because it was Janet Johnson's camera and he knew who Janet Johnson was. And so he reached out to me out of nowhere, sent me a note on Twitter and said, can we talk? And then sent me an email to say, here's the background of this. Would you be interested in this story? And I said, of course, yes, please. Amazing. And the fact that he knew the name speaks to just how much that uh, particular octet, that eats, that eats them, uh, still live in memory for the, on, on that mountain and live in the lore of that, of that mountain. Yeah, they really do. And, you know, the younger guides maybe didn't recognize the name, but the older guides certainly did, because Janet Johnson is a little bit of a, um, a, a tall tale or a bit of folklore down in Aconcagua, because she and John Cooper died on the mountain. And it was, there were a lot of strange circumstances when they died in 1973. And it became a, you know, sort of a soap opera in the local media there um, about what really happened. The strange part about it is that most of that mystery never really made its way to the United States. 
Um, you know, right. two people die high on a mountain, and of course, it's it's dismissed as an accident, and perhaps it was. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of investigation or a lot of second guessing in, in the United States. But back in Argentina, around Aconcagua and around the city of Mendoza, which is the big city uh, near, at the base of the Andes there, it was front page news, essentially, and uh, for a long time until they could find the bodies because the bodies were left on the mountain. And it took um, over the course of about three years before they found both bodies and even finding both bodies mostly added to the mystery because of how the bodies were found and the condition that they were found in. So, yeah, it's for 50 years, it's been kind of a ghost story down there. And so the camera was uh, was an opportunity to to at least see what was on her film and to see if it might add to the, add to the mystery or answer some of the questions, uh, but certainly gave me a chance to retell the story or tell the story for the majority of the people who had never heard this before. Yeah, there are some amazing photos. I mean, just the fact that it was covered quite extensively when it happened. Uh, there, all the stories, of course, are from local media in Argentina. But but it's amazing to see the the images of of this group. It was an odd group to attempt. What would I mean? In hindsight, it it was an odd group to attempt such a daring climb. I would think. Yeah, I mean, there there are eight Americans, and as you mentioned, they came basically are based out of Mazamas, which is one of the old. Um, climbing clubs of the United States, of North America, I think the second oldest climbing club, um, dating back to the 1880s or 1890 or so. And um, one of their leaders said, I have our, have our sights on Aconcagua and basically put a bulletin out saying, I'm looking for people who would be interested in doing this. And it's, it's a higher mountain. It's the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere. Um, it's higher than anything that any of them had been on. Um, several of them did have some international experience in South America and Europe and so on, but nobody had been like to the Himalayas. And so this was a pretty audacious idea. And part of the audaciousness of that is that they decided to um, go a route that was more technical and more difficult than the usual route, than the normal route, and that's up the Polish glacier. And that's where things went bad for everybody was on the Polish glacier, which is up near the summit. And that's where the uh, the bodies were found, ultimately. And uh, 47 years later, where Janet Johnson's camera was found. Right. Where, in, where did the mystery begin? Because uh, I gather, just from reading your article, obviously, that there were some contradictory stories after the fact. Um, there was certainly some suspicion locally about what may or may not have happened to both Cooper and Johnson on the mountain itself. Where did the mystery start yeah. to come in? How, did, how was it sort of determined that this wasn't simply an accident involving a tough climb and a group that might have been, mightn't have had the experience to do it? Yeah, well, I mean, a couple things happened that um, really got the attention of people. And people were paying attention down there on this group, for this group anyway, because it was mm-hmm. an American group. Um, you know, it wasn't like there was a huge crowd on Aconcagua back in 1973. So these Americans were coming. John Cooper worked for NASA, and it was literally on the heels of the Apollo missions. He was part of the control room of, of NASA and the Apollo missions. Janet Johnson was a woman at the time. Not a lot of women were doing this. Um, and they wanted to go up the Polish glacier. So before they even started, people said, wow, this is an interesting group. Um, and then, you know, weeks later, when they come off the mountain, two people are missing. And the last two people to see them alive say, yeah, we um, we don't know exactly what happened to them. <laughs> we, we lost Janet, basically. Uh, we lost John. Um, and last we saw, we found his body dead. And the last we saw Janet, she said she was going to be behind us, and we don't know what happened to her. And so, you know, 10 people come up and eight people come down and two people are saying, yeah, we're not exactly sure what happened. We were, we were the last one to see them. 
raised a lot of questions immediately, of course. Um, their stories then contradicted a little bit as they were being asked by reporters what happened and by investigators what happened. Um, they, they admitted to a lot of hallucinations up at high altitude. They were up near the summit for several days without oxygen, so not surprisingly, they were um, experiencing things like high-altitude sickness and hallucinations. And so when they told their story, people said, well, that doesn't quite add up. Um, and then the judge and the investigator said, well, we can't really determine anything, including whether there was foul play or not, until we have the bodies. And the whole notion of foul play reached the United States State Department, um, certainly the media. And so that kind of planted the seed just in those first few days after this happened. What really happened up there? There's a lot of questions that we need to get answered here. And it was really, really difficult to find those questions. And so they sent out um, people to go try to find the bodies. And John Cooper's body wasn't found until the following climbing season. And Janet Johnson's was not found for two more years after that. And when those bodies then came down, it reignited interest in all of this. And the autopsies showed that they were both uh, victims not of high-altitude illness of any sort, but of blows to the head. And so some people said, well, maybe they fell. But there were a lot of strange circumstances that said, well, it doesn't really make sense that they would have fallen considering where their bodies were found. And so people thought, well, maybe somebody struck them. Uh, you, you know, it, it, we didn't know exactly what happened. People couldn't quite tell what happened, but they were very quick to, to fill in the gaps with their imagination and yeah. their theories. And that's where the sat for, for decades. New York Times reporter John Branch is with us this half hour talking about a piece he's written called Ghosts on the Glacier. It's about eight Americans who went to summit the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere in Argentina back in 1973. Two of them died, and the circumstances around their deaths have remained a mystery ever since. Uh, they were Janet Johnson, a school teacher, and NASA engineer John Cooper. Johnson had a camera with her that didn't turn up until 2020, and that's where uh, John comes into this story. Uh, John, you know Canadians love a Canadian connection. I'm sure if you've been here, you know that. Um, and there was a Canadian connection in this story as well, isn't there? There was. Um, I think I, I, I joke about this because I've written several stories based in Saskatchewan. I think I've spent more time in Saskatchewan than any other New York Times reporter. Um, and this one brought no me doubt. back there again. Um, there was, um, you know, we were looking for a lab that could develop this film. Um, we wanted to be very careful with it, knowing we'd had one chance, knowing that it could be damaged and all that. We couldn't just take it to the local photo mat or whatever. And um, it turns out, thanks to a colleague of mine who did all the research on this, that the, the best lab at handling old found film that has yet to be developed happens to be in Indian Head, Saskatchewan, uh, not far from Regina. And so uh, we all eventually got the film um, to Regina or to Saskatchewan and had it developed at this lab there in Indian Head. And what was found? Because I gather the, the film was actually, I mean, the pictures were there, right? I mean, you actually found pictures taken by Janet Johnson of this famed expedition. Yeah, that's right. We, you know, of course, we didn't know what we would find. I mean, I half expected that the film might be blank for whatever reason. Um, it could be, you know, ruined. It's been 50 years. It's been exposed to high altitude and all that. But it turns out, apparently, that if you're going to try to preserve film, that maybe the inside of a glacier is not the worst place. And so pretty quickly when they went to develop it, they said, you know what, we see there's something on here and it looks pretty good. Um, it was damaged and um, damaged from water. So there are some interesting sort of uh, smears and things on it. Um, and the way they processed it, first in black and white and then in color, left some really kind of psychedelic sort of color smears to it. Um, so they're really hauntingly beautiful, but they're very clear. And 
you know, we, we were just talking about whether they solve the mystery. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. I pretty much knew that if, if there were photos at all, they probably weren't going to solve anything. You know, I'm, you know, not to make light of this, but I wasn't expecting, maybe hoping, but not expecting that the last frame would show, you know, a, a person standing there with a weapon or, or something that would yes. explain everything. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that the last frames were by Janet Johnson, high on Aconcagua, near the summit, Beautiful landscapes, beautiful shots of the other two people who were the who were the survivors um, climbing up on the glacier. And so she was obviously in good enough shape um, to take really beautiful photos and focus them and make sure the light was right and all that kind of thing. So it, it is interesting and haunting in a way to think these were the last images that she took. These are the last things that she saw before things went really bad and she um, died soon thereafter. Yeah. You spoke to the last surviving member of the eight, right? The student who was the translator. Yeah. So John Shelton, of the eight Americans, they'd all passed away. Eight um, Americans. And yes. John, yeah. And John Shelton um, was the last of the surviving Americans, the last of those eight. He was a 25-year-old student, geology student, back in 1973. When I met him, he was in a VA hospital um, in, under hospice care in Utah. Uh, now, in fact, it was on his 76th birthday, 75th or 76th birthday um, that I met with him and, um, and got his side of the story. Of course, he was not on the glacier when um, two other members um, came down and, and, and Janet Johnson and John Cooper were left behind um but he was the first one to meet those two as they came down and so his recollection is of what they said to him and then the fallout over those following following days um he he told me that what he thought was that any any notion of foul play was hogwash that was his term um and the reason why is because he believed the two men that came down um who told their story and said that it was all just an accident Reading through the um, through the article itself, when you when you come out the end of it, you, you do get the impression that we'll just never know, right? We'll just never know for sure. But there's family as well. I think Janet Johnson has a sister that you speak to. Uh, there's family that still yep. want answers here, but but it's unlikely we'll ever get them. Yeah, and I, I think they gave up realistic hope long ago that we would ever get them. I, I think that they hoped that maybe the uh, the camera might. Um, you know, be revealing in some way or that somebody would come out of the woodwork with more information. But the two men who were the last to see Janet and John Cooper alive have passed away more than 10 years ago. Um, And it's hard to tell how much they talked about any of this. Um, When they got back to the United States back in 1973, you know, there's a kind of a firestorm back in Argentina about all this. But up here, they met um, with the climbing club, the Mazamas Climbing Club, who wanted to make sure they had all their ducks in a row. They knew there was some controversy here. They had heard the rumors. They were getting a lot of questions about it. So they had a secret meeting to say, let's figure out what the story really is. Um, And then they came out privately with a memo that said, okay, guys, here's the story of what happened. And that Mm -hmm. became basically the narrative that everybody told about this, that apparently it was just an accident. They probably died of high-altitude sickness. Um, And so the local papers in the United States kind of went with that as much as they were covering it, you know, which wasn't a lot by that point anyway. But the ones who did the hometown papers of the people on the expedition, that was the narrative that they, everybody followed along with. Um, seemingly un, either unsure about, or, you know, it's 1973, so nobody's on the internet or something like that. Seemingly unsure that, or not realizing 
just how much controversy was down in Argentina about them um, and how much conjecture was going on about them, you know, just how much they were being talked about, um, uh, even though they were up here in in the U.S. And so we we never really will know, I don't think, what what happened um, because they, they never they never said and now they're gone. Yeah, it's a fascinating. John, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. It's a fascinating article. I recommend people go have a look for it. look at it for themselves because it's very visual as well. I appreciate that. Thank you, Ben, so much. Yes, I am in the black for the first time in four years. That's great. I guess I owe that to you. Thank you. You're welcome. So you can sell us real easy then, huh? I can probably get some interest yet. Oh, boy. That's great. Oh, that's just great, Anita. You know, for five months now, I've been trying to prove to you, without ever even really knowing who you were, that you were wrong, and that we could get somebody interested in the Chiefs. We could sew that thing up tonight, you know. We were going to cream those guys. That's terrific. But you have to understand that I couldn't make enough of a profit to have a sale be worthwhile. My accountant tells me I'm better off folding the team, taking a tax loss. You mean you could sell us, but you won't? I could probably sell you, but I can't. There you have it. Even perhaps the most famous hockey movie of all time, Slapshot, that was a scene from it, involves the business side of hockey, right? Um, And well, here in Canada, we like to see hockey as something bigger and better than the bottom line. The cold, hard truth, the icy truth is that pro hockey, the NHL, was, is, and will continue to be a business. The nature of that business, though, has changed uh, from the nostalgia of the original six through the expansion to 12 teams in 1967, through the many expansions, um, expansion teams in the 1970s, the arrival and demise of the WHA with four teams, including three Canadian ones, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Quebec City, joining the NHL uh, in 1979, making it 21 teams. It's 32 now, 25 U.S. franchises, seven Canadian ones. Of course, we a Canadian team has not won a cup since 1993. Part of that is, of course, not only because if you look back at the original six, there are actually four American teams and two Canadian ones. But uh, the numbers are, are increasingly stacked against uh, Canadian teams winning the cup, at least if all things be all things being equal. Uh, my next guest grew up in Saskatchewan as a huge hockey fan from the get-go. He later became an economist, focusing on the economics of pro sports, including the NHL. He's spent a lot of time working in Boston. He's now based in Las Vegas. So he has a really interesting, interesting perspective, not just on how Canadians view hockey and, you know, Saskatchewan. I mean, growing up, the amount of times it looked like maybe, just maybe, Saskatchewan would get a team and haven't. Uh, I guess the St. Louis Blues was the biggest opportunity back in the early 80s. Um, he brings a, a unique perspective to this story because not only is, is it, uh, from an economics point of view, interesting to be have been in Boston for so long and now to be in Las Vegas, the current Stanley Cup champs, obviously a very successful and very young franchise, but also understands um, the business of hockey from a Canadian perspective and just how much Canadians view it as more than a business. And he's gone back to figure out when that changed, you know, especially from a 15-year span, he points to between the, the sort of the late 1960s and the early 1980s, where the game really changed in this country as we know it forever. Neil Longley, again, is a Regina-born uh, director of business at Nevada State University in Las Vegas. His new book is called A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada. And he joins me now. Neil, thank you so much. Hi, Ben. 
Glad to be here. Tell me a bit about how you, I mean, this is such a, this is a topic we've been talking about for years in this country, right? The business of hockey is is almost as, uh, seems to be as, almost as much as part of the game as the game itself when it comes to Canadian conversations. Uh, but what got you interested in the, in the business side of, of the game? Mainly, Ben, my, my, my background is an economist. Of course, a lifelong love of hockey, as you mentioned, originally from Saskatchewan, grew up in Regina. As, as most Canadians, particularly on the prairies, it was hockey, hockey, hockey. When I became an economist, I realized I could actually make a living studying sports markets. And particular focus here, of course, with my background was on, was on hockey. And so I've done that much of my career. And, and for me, I think it, it became a question as to the, the, the profound differences that we've seen over the last half century in the game, on the ice, those have corresponding factors that, that have driven that on the business side of the game, but also in terms of some of the profound changes in Canada and its economics, its politics, and those kinds of things. So in the book, I, I try to make some of those connectors as well, that, that hockey and the business of hockey was not simply in a, in a vacuum, but really impacted by these much broader changes in society. Yeah, because the title says it all, a whole new game, right? And I think back, I mean, I was born in 1970, so I lived in, grew up in Montreal, so at the heyday of those late Habs dynasties, but also, you know, with the further expansion of the league in the 70s to different American markets, some of them worked, some of them didn't, then the WHA coming about, folding, and then those teams coming into the NHL. So we've seen a lot of changes over the last 50 years, but it feels like in the last quarter century, at least, uh, it's become pretty ingrained as to how this league is going to function, which is, I mean, other than Winnipeg, uh, some ex- you know expansion in the U.S., particularly in big TV markets. No offense to Canada, but you know if you win a cup, good, good for you. If not, we're not worried. <laughs> and that's, that, that's exactly it. And I think, I think you hit it right on the head, Ben. I think... There was a period, not only in the NHL and in hockey, but in all major pro sports in North America during the 60s and 70s, which were very tumultuous from a competitive perspective. And they were actually kind of fun to watch because there was new leagues emerging all the time, including, as you mentioned, the WHA. What's turned out to be the four major pro leagues here really hadn't at that point solidified their positions. They hadn't solidified their very dominant monopolies, which they all are now. That has gradually changed. The WHA was was merged into the NHL in 1979. We haven't really seen the emergence of other uh, competitor leagues in, in any of the other three major pro sports in this in North America. So there has been amongst the, the big leagues, so to speak, this this solidification of their position. And I think in the NHL, we often trace that particularly because it's the most obvious one to the early 90s, the arrival of Gary Batman. Uh, as commissioner and coming from the NBA and using very much of an NBA model uh, to adapt to the NHL, wanted major markets, major TV markets in the United States to all have franchises, whether or not they had you know long hockey histories. And yes, I think we've entered a very stable period. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's always a good period, but it's certainly much more stable now. We have the 32 teams in the league. There's no chance of any competitors arising. So what we have now, for the most part, is what we're going to get in the future. And you've mentioned, of course, that the league, I mean, I think what's interesting about hockey in Canada, and I lived in England for a while, is that we sort of treat hockey the way the British treat soccer, 
right? Which is that it sort of belongs to us. But in reality, much like every other American sport, North American league, uh, the league actually belongs to the 32 people who own those teams, right? And you point that out. That's the issue. It's a monopoly. There is no relegation and promotion. There are no sort of Cinderella stories of clubs being bought and then sort of skyrocketing up the league, say like, uh, you know, like Wrexham right now, for instance. Um, It's it's very much a static league and it's been it's been good to the 32 owners, right? It's been excellent for the 32 owners. I mean, Gary Batman, when it comes to that measure over the past 30 years, has done a wonderful job for the owners. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's always been a wonderful job for the fans and particularly for the fans in Canada. And, I, I, you know, I've lived the last 20 years in the U.S., uh, most of that in the Boston area, but the last few years here in Las Vegas. And the game is very different here. Uh, the fans are very different. It's become very much of an entertainment package. Here in Las Vegas, I mean, the Golden Knights have been extremely successful, not only on the ice, but even more so off the ice for a market where there was really not a lot of depth in terms of hockey knowledge, you know, five, six years ago. They have done an incredible job of building a fan base, but it is different. It's not like, as you say, hockey in Canada or soccer in England, where it's it's the core, you know, of the country. That was one of the motivations as well in terms of looking at are Canadian stories and the Canadian history of hockey, are they at risk of sort of being lost here in, in this, this, what I call Disneyfication of, of the National Hockey League? Yeah, I was quizzed by a by a cab driver in Las Vegas once about hockey right before the first the inaugural season. He asked me all about how the game worked, right? Because they didn't really understand. <laughs> it was interesting. But if we've looked at what's happened in Seattle and what's happened in Vegas, I mean, you know, there were some blips with expansion. Uh, in the past, but recently it seems like the teams, the new expansion teams have been a big success. And I, and I think that sort of doesn't, that's not encouraging if you are, are hoping to see more teams come to this country. Yeah. And I think that's true. And I think there's now very precise guidelines as to what new expansion teams would have to bring to the existing owners. And so much of that is based on market size and, and on TV markets. I mean, so much of the revenue uh, is generated not by gate receipts as in the old days, but by TV revenues, not only national, but, but local revenues. And yes, I, I think given the, the relatively small population base of the candidates in Canada versus the, the still large population of those that are seeking franchise in the U.S., it, it's, it's hard to see how that's going to change fundamentally, yes. When you look at the economics of it, because I think this is what always puzzles Canadians. I mean, Canadian rinks are filled. You know, the top-rated games are on Canadian channels. You know, more Canadians will watch a playoff game than all the American audiences combined, often, not always. Uh, but how does the economics make sense then when you have a sort of relatively low gate revenue, maybe uh, not huge multi-network you know, network TV deals, or at least not anymore? Uh, how does the economics make sense, though, to keep so many teams in the U.S. and to provide um, no new ones to Canada? Right. And I think really it, it's in many ways the, the, the overwhelming population advantage means that those market shares don't have to be as large you know, as they are in Canada. Right? They, and I think the other piece here, uh, Ben, is, is, is the local TV revenues for U.S.-based teams and you know, what the Rangers, uh, what the Blackhawks, what the Red Wings can draw in their local markets. And I talk in the book about the rise of digital uh, television back in the early 90s, which very much coincided with the increased revenue advantages that some of the larger market American teams were seeing. And I think that that really from a revenue perspective, it's as much at those at those local levels 
is is something that is very hard for uh, potential Canadian franchises to to compete with. Neil Longley is with us this half hour. His new book is called A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada. So as we look ahead, I mean, absolutely, I, I guess, I mean, as we look ahead to what the future of professional hockey in, in, in North America is going to look like, we have 32 teams now. It doesn't look like any of those American teams. I mean, in the old days, Phoenix would never have survived, right? It just wouldn't, the Arizona Coyotes wouldn't be there anymore. And yet they're still there. And that says a lot about the modern game, I think. It does, and I think that's a great example, Ben, because, yes, by by any business measure, uh, let alone on-ice measure, the Arizona Coyotes probably should have left that market. I think it does speak to the commissioner's focus on staying in the top TV markets in the United States, and Phoenix is is a top 10, top 11 type TV market in, in the U.S., and he does not want to lose that. He does not want to lose that. So it just shows you how strong that draws, because... They're now playing in a, in a college arena on the campus of Arizona State, I think 5,000 capacity arena, and they're probably going to be there for a while. So that's, that's the price here that's being paid. There's an image price as well. It's become certainly talked about a lot in hockey circles in terms of, of, of that example. So I think it's a reflection, as you say, of, of just how, how important it is to stay in these large uh, markets. I mean, the networks, the, the major networks in, in the U.S. demand that essentially. If you're not, if you're not filling those those top top ten, top twelve, they're much less interested. Right. So cities like Miami, for instance, and Dallas, and then and those big big markets in the U.S. Why hasn't there? This is always a question that pops up. I mean, certainly, if a, if a city like the size of New York, the New York metropolitan area, can support three NHL teams and have and has for decades now, certainly Toronto or Montreal could support more than one team. And yet, I guess that's just never going to happen because of the vested interests of the existing franchises. Yeah, exactly. And and. You're right. And in, in, in sport economics, we call that the territorial rights. And the existing owners, not just in the NHL, but in the other major pro leagues as well, uh, do have uh, territorial rights. So it becomes very difficult for other franchises to move into that territory. So the Coyotes moving into the Toronto market or even into Hamilton becomes or, you know, a real concern. And, and, and Hamilton would, in, in, you know, would, would move into the territory, not only the least, but the Buffalo Sabres as well. Mm-hmm. So the exi- part of part of the monopoly status of the existing owners is is that the current owners generally have protection from their league counterpart parts of moving into their territory. And we and we look at New York, and it's kind of a an oddity in the sense that the Islanders got created really in response to the WHA's threat of entering that market. So it wasn't like back in 1972, the NHL said, hey, let's have a second team in New York to compete essentially in some ways with the Rangers. In many ways, that was forced upon. That was preemptive. The Devils came from uh, Colorado where they were mm-hmm. the Colorado Rockies. And that was, again, a bit of a peculiar story that concerns that the Rangers would move, move across the uh, the Hudson River and, and into uh, the the Meadowlands at that time. So we do see sometimes multiple teams in one market, but it's very rare. And it's usually, in many cases, traced back to threatened competition from these rival leagues we talked about that were that were so common back in the 60s and 70s. Right, which don't, which the, the threat of which no longer exists. So what does the future look like? I mean, I think Canadians have become resigned. We haven't won a cup in 30 years plus now. Uh, I think we've become resigned to this is the way the league is going to be. The Canadian franchises at least, Canadian franchises at least seem relatively strong these days, which is good. Uh, right. But uh, what does the future look like, do you think? And what is the downside of this success as a league for the NHL and its 32 teams for the Canadian hockey fan? 
Well, I think the downside is, is really that there's no motivation to have significant change. And, and I think we're going to continue to see it. And I'm not saying we would not see another Canadian franchise added, let's say, in the next decade. I mean, I think that that could be quite likely in the, in the right situation with the right owners, the right arena, these kinds of things. But we are never going to see teams, you know, in Hamilton and Saskatoon and Halifax and Quebec City and so on. It's simply... It's simply not the, the economics of the league have changed so substantially. I mean, I think if we if we go back, you know, almost a half century, uh, teams in Edmonton and Winnipeg and really Calgary indirectly were the result of a competitor league. And that's a lot of a lot of uh, what I talk about in, in, in one chapter of the book is that would we have seen hockey on the prairies because the NHL really had no interest in going into Edmonton or Winnipeg. Ben Hatskin, the original Jets owner, had tried to get a franchise, the NHL franchise in 1967 when the league doubled in size, was sort of flatly refused. It was simply not going to happen. So competition drives action. And if there is no inherent reason why we need to place a team in a certain city in Canada, we will only kind of do it on our own time. And I, so I think that centralized decision-making um, with the majority of the clubs being in the U.S., does not bode well for seeing a huge influx of new Canadian teams over the next the next decade. It's it's the status quo. Yeah, the game is becoming increasingly less less Canadian in every which way. Anil, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Imagine a world where you and I are guaranteed the gift of life, where we feel safe and nurtured. A world where you're free to make your impact however you wish. And there is no glass ceiling as you move through your life. A world where we all fight for the health of each other and our planet. That's something from the Gates Foundation YouTube page, which involves a lot of very slick, nice-looking videos. I mean, uh, if if you stay away from the conspiracy theories, I know they're out there. This is not one of these segments. Uh, most of the news you see about the multi-billion-dollar Gates Foundation uh, focuses on the vast charity work they do around the world, tackling disease, promoting public health, uh, education, uh, agricultural development, and so on. Uh, it's been a huge reputational boost for what remains one of the world's richest men, Bill Gates, of course. You may remember that back in the late 1990s, uh, it was different. The U.S. government was suing Microsoft for its alleged monopolistic behavior. Gates was sort of painted as the face of a new uh, kind of very smart, very rich, and very ruthless tech CEO, tech giant. Um, but in 2000, he and his then-wife, Melinda, established their foundation to tackle some of the world's, uh, what they thought of as the world's most pressing challenges, including public health, family planning, hunger, education, and so on. And, um, you know, along with roughly $67 billion at the time, I mean, the Gates Foundation is one of the, is, is massive and powerful. That's a lot of money, uh, better equipped to tackle disease and malnutrition than many governments that they deal with in some of the countries that they that they work in. Um, and then, of course, at that point, suddenly Bill Gates was no longer this sort of ruthless tech boss. He was a world-saving philanthropist. But my next guest argues that that isn't quite the true story. 
that uh, Gates and the foundation that bears his name continue to exert a ton of influence and control over a wide range of public policy areas right around the world. And they do so not necessarily in the shadows, but they do so with a lot without a lot of accountability. In other words, uh, he just figured that this was something with the amount of money being spent, the amount of impact that the Gates Foundation has had on a lot of different public policy areas in many different countries that it was worth looking into. So Tim Schwab's book is called The Bill Gates Problem. And it questions not so much the multi-billionaire's intentions overall, but the result of wielding that much money and power without having to answer for it very much. Tim Schwab joins me now again. The book is called The Bill Gates Problem, Reckoning with the Myth of the Good Billionaire. Tim, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, the title pretty much says it all, but just a bit about your background, because you've been writing and and, and working on reporting on uh, the Gates Foundation for a long time now. Yes, I'm a freelance journalist, and I was sort of getting toward the end of a, I guess you could call it an unsuccessful freelance career. And I got a journalism fellowship that allowed me to take a deep dive into one topic, sort of looked around at the media landscape of what's a really big story that hasn't been told or hasn't been told right or well. And the Gates Foundation was just this flashing siren um, because it has so much money and so much influence in world affairs. And the news media is constantly covering the Gates Foundation, but they're doing so in a really one-sided manner, always looking at its goals, its ambitions, its forward-looking promises, but there's very little in the way of accountability journalism. Yeah, you you refer to it as as a political organization more than a charity, but because of how much influence it has. Absolutely, if you look at where the Gates Foundation works, anywhere from public education in poor school districts in the United States to public health um, all over um, poor nations around the world, these are really public policies that I think a lot of us would hope would be organized administered and managed through a public process, through a democratic debate. Um, and what you know, extreme wealth always does is tip the scales of democracy in favor of the people who have more money and therefore they have uh, more influence. And that's really what I'm arguing that the Gates Foundation is doing is that it allows, it's not so much giving away money as it is buying influence. It's allowing uh, Bill Gates to reorganize these public policies according to his own narrow view of how the world should work. Which probably shouldn't be much of a surprise given how he ran Microsoft. And I, I was trying to go back to that to that transformation because I remember his reputation well as, as sort of the guru of Microsoft and then how it be, sort of transformed when he started this foundation and announced he was going to give give all his money away, quote unquote. Uh, tell me a bit about that transformation because it, it was an interesting one because his reputation was not... I was going to say his reputation as a business leader and as a sort of a tech leader were all very – his bona fides there were, were undeniable, but he was never considered to be an altruistic kind of guy. No, and it is really stunning the transformation he's undergone from this cold-hearted, calculating, hyper-capitalist industry captain into this soft-hearted, uh, uh, you know, soft-spoken, kind-hearted, altruistic man who's giving away all of his money. I mean, it's it's clearly it's a it's a fiction. Bill Gates has not really changed. He remains today the same hard charging, demanding alpha male who ran Microsoft. I mean, his the Gates Foundation has done you know great PR to try and reimagine and, and reconceptualize who Bill, Bill Gates is and reintroduce him as a changed man. But he really is the same person who ran Microsoft. And understanding that helps us understand how he runs the Gates Foundation. 
and how the Gates Foundation operates. You know, the really easy example here is that, um, you know, Bill Gates launched the Gates Foundation in the late 1990s as Microsoft faced antitrust allegations, um, allegations of stifling innovation, stifling industry of monopoly power. And today, the Gates Foundation's work in many areas is founded by the same criticism of monopoly power. But the Gates Foundation has so much money and so much influence that it can plant its flag in certain areas of whether it be public education or public health and really change the way the landscape works. Suddenly, it's funding most of the groups working on a given public policy, the think tanks, the universities, the news outlets, the NGOs. And so you can get a whole field or a whole corner of a field rowing in the same direction. And that creates a powerful current that's difficult to row against. And all this makes perfect sense. And it's fine if we believe in this mythology of the sort of benevolent tyrant, that, that Bill Gates is an altruistic and well-meaning guy who's giving away all of his money and his solutions are the best solutions and the right solutions for the world. But I think if you take the time to peel back the layers, you've realized it's a much more complicated and complex narrative and that the way that bill gates operates the gates foundation is a very undemocratically um, he's taking power um, and influence over these all these public policies that he hasn't earned he has no mandate um, he often has no expertise in these areas but here he is with his solutions to the world's problems the popular narrative has always been, though, that if you look at something like, say, malaria, that, that something like the Gates Foundation puts money where there is no money to try to solve problems that have, have dogged us for a long time. Um, and yet what you point out, I mean, with just with the amount of money that he has and the amount of money they can pour into any given uh, solution, that it tends to be – and I think this is what's so interesting about it – it tends to be what he thinks the right solution is, right, whether it is or not. And, and perhaps it is the right one. I think you've mentioned that you don't think his intentions are necessarily bad in his own mind, but the outcomes mightn't be good. Yeah, I think that Bill Gates is well-meaning in the sense that he really believes that he's helping the world. So the criticism I would make is that Bill Gates is helping the world the only way he knows how, which is by taking control. There's a certain pathology around control and influence and power we've seen throughout Bill Gates' career, from Microsoft to today at the Gates Foundation. And malaria is one of many examples we could point to. Um, 15 years ago, the head of the malaria program at the World Health Organization issued an internal memo, which was leaked to the press, which talked about the monopolistic power that the Gates Foundation was having over malaria research, um, that they were funding everybody. And the effect of this was to close down sort of the debate among scientists and policymakers about the best way forward with malaria. So, you know, the Gates Foundation has its you know, own narrow ideas about how to tackle malaria, but those aren't going to be the only ways to do it. And you can think about any disease or any public policy, the decision tree that goes into it, you know, malaria or any disease, do you focus on prevention or treatment? Within prevention or treatment, do you take a pharmaceutical focused approach or a non-pharmaceutical approach? If you take a pharmaceutical approach, do you, do you work with big pharma or do you challenge big pharma? So at every step there, the Gates Foundation can put its thumbs on the scales and really shape what should be a democratic decision-making process. How does that manifest itself then in, in reality? I can only imagine a country trying to fight any number of issues that they have, public health issues that they have. And here comes a foundation with a lot of money. Um, but you, you've pointed out that the money that the foundation provides isn't enough, that there has to be policy decisions made based on the influence of that money as well. 
Yeah, I mean, even though the Gates Foundation today has a $67 billion endowment, even though it's giving away billions of dollars a year, it's not enough money to really solve these complex social problems that at the end of the day track back to poverty. Uh, you know, fixing public education, fixing public health. There's no silver bullet solution to this. Um, but that's the that's in a lot of ways is the approach that the Gates Foundation takes. It's really nibbling around the edges. It's trying to come up with, you know, a, oftentimes it's a technological solution, like in the case of public health, it wants a biomedical solution, a new vaccine or a new drug or a new diagnostic. And it has a this idea that, you know, helping create new pharmaceuticals, helping get them, you know, to the global core, that that's going to revolutionize public health. Um, but we now have more than two decades of evidence that we can look to, to really understand what the effect of the Gates Foundation has been. And if you go back to the early days of the foundation of what Bill Gates promised and what he said he would do in terms of revolutionizing American education and, and agricultural development in sub-Saharan Africa, there was going to you know, cut hunger in half and double yields and the really game changing new drugs and diagnostics that Bill Gates said that his foundation would, would bring to market. It really has fallen far short of, of the promises that the foundation has made. And so in many of the areas, I think you could say that the foundation failed to do what it set out to do. But we have to also understand that, you know, when the Gates Foundation fails, there are real costs to that, to society, to democracy. There are opportunity costs and there's collateral damage. And you have, so you have to think about the counterfactual. You know, yes, the Gates Foundation is helping deliver a, a, a large number of vaccines that are saving lives. And you can calculate the number of vaccines and the number of lives being saved. But that can't be the whole story because you're not considering the counterfactuals. You know, how many more lives could we save or improve if we used a different approach to public health than the Gates Foundation is pushing us toward? Tim Schwab is an investigative reporter from Washington, D.C. His book is called The Bill Gates Problem, Reckoning with the Myth of the Good Billionaire. The title pretty much says it all. Uh, Tim, when you look at the good and the bad, because I, I think, I mean, a lot of the coverage, obviously, and you point out point the reasons for point out the reasons for this in your book. Uh, you know, a lot of the coverage is it can be very flattering uh, about uh, what exactly is being achieved here. But tell me some of the good and the bad that you've seen from the Bill Gates Foundation, because I know it does some good, but you also think there are that it, that it does some bad too. Because I guess the ultimate question is, would we be better off if Bill Gates had just took all that money and gone home with it, or is it, are we better off with him spending it this way? Yeah, I would also say I'll answer the question, but I'd also say there's a third option, which is to making sure that Bill Gates pays his fair share in taxes. Right. Um, you know, this is one of many dirty little secrets of the Gates Foundation is that it is highly subsidized by taxpayers, you know, especially in the United States. Um, much of the money that Bill Gates donates philanthropically, he would otherwise have to pay in taxes. But the tax code in the United States richly rewards wealthy donors when they give away money. So this is something I, I have a whole chapter in the book on taxes, and I try to make it interesting, as wonky as that sounds. But tax scholars widely agree that billionaire philanthropy is richly subsidized by us, by us taxpayers, which is a clear trigger for accountability. Taxpayers should be able to see what Bill Gates is doing with our money. Maybe we should also have a say about how he's spending our money. Or we need to rethink the tax code so that we eliminate these tax breaks. You know, Bill Gates today is a personal estimated uh, personal net worth of $120 billion. Should we be giving him the benefit of these tax benefits for anything he wants to do? 
If he wants to give away his own money, that's one thing. But if he's benefiting from taxpayer dollars, that's another thing. Um, and I've lost track of your question, Ben. Yeah, no, I mean, what I was saying is, I guess the ultimate question is, because that was the third option, whether we're better off with if he had just taken the money and gone home with it, or whether we're better off with him using it this way, right? And there are examples, I think, of where the Gates Foundation has seen some success, but you've also found examples where you think they've done more harm than good. Yeah, and you know there are experts around the world, fancy people at fancy institutions who will say that, that the Gates Foundation is doing more harm than good. And Gates, some of Gates' own intended beneficiaries are making similar claims. Um, in areas like agricultural development, the Gates Foundation really has achieved um, very little in its charitable interventions. And farmer groups now across sub-Saharan Africa uh, are now fairly widely calling on the Gates Foundation to end its charitable crusade because it's causing so much harm. Um, you know, Gates' approach there is really to industrialize agriculture, to make it look more like the farming you have in Canada or in the United States, where you have larger acreage farms, uh, mechanization, agrochemicals, high-tech seeds. Um, it's a very industrial approach that, you know, many experts have long said are, is kind of ill-suited for the way that um, agriculture is organized in many African nations. And indeed, Gates interventions have not worked. You know, of course, there are, I'm sure we could look, we could find stories within um, Gates agricultural work where farmers have benefited. But I think the really the big headline stories that Gates projects have failed. And in their failures, they've also stood in the way of other alternative solutions that farmers themselves and experts have posited as a, as a better way forward. I mean, in terms of Gates's biggest accomplishments, you know, the things that it's most proud of and that I really devote the first chapter of the book to are its work in public health. And it, it can truly say that it has helped uh, vaccinate millions of people around the world. And we can, through a very simplistic analysis, say that those vaccinations are saving lives. But again, that can't be the whole story. <clears throat> um, you know, one way to look at this is the Gates Foundation partners very closely with large pharmaceutical companies um, to try to help poor people get access to their expensive vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics. But there's another way you could approach this problem is to say, well, why don't we challenge and embarrass big pharmaceutical companies for having all of these life-saving medicines and not freely making them available to the global poor. Um, you know, at a point you have to wonder, is the Gates model, which, which brings big pharma to the table as a humanitarian partner, if that really is the right way forward. When people see the next story, when they read the next, I would call it flattering. Perhaps it won't be. We don't know what's coming up in the news. But uh, next time they see a, a fairly flattering story about the Gates Foundation, what would you like them to walk away with then? What would you like them to know? The headline for the new story is always the Gates Foundation is giving away this large sum of money with an ambition to do this big thing going forward. Um, I would expect, I would hope that readers would look at this and say, well, what about all the money that Bill Gates isn't giving away? You know, during his tenure as a philanthropist, his personal wealth has nearly doubled. Um, you know, the narrative we have is that this is a rich guy who's given away all of his money freely. And it's, it's a fiction. It's a dangerous mythology. He's given away money he has no need for. Um, it's a relatively small amount of money that he's given away compared to his vast wealth. Um, it is, and it's also, you know, he's out in the world solving problems that aren't his to solve. Um, he has no mandate to solve these. Nobody elected him or appointed him. 
to try and take charge of agricultural development or public health or public education. So it's an anti-democratic exercise of power and one that deserves um, debate and scrutiny, um, not simple exultation and adulation. Was there any reaction from him or the foundation to, to what you've written? I think in the Daily Mail, uh, a spokesperson for Bill Gates said it was kind of a non-response. It's the only one that I've seen so far. It just said something about how Bill Gates is committed to solving problems and he didn't agree with the book's findings, something kind of simplistic like that. Right. Uh, Tim, congratulations. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ben.